0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend, Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is September 27th, 2023.
1: I'm Scott DeLundebohm.
0: And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have houses that need to get built in BC and embarrassments in the House of Commons. Patreon.com slash Politicoast. Go support the show. Join our Slack and talk about all the things as they happen. Here in BC, our big news before the legislature returns in the next couple weeks, I've lost track of the calendars, we have our official targets for those 10 municipalities that were put on a list many months ago. I'd forgotten. This was a thing. And they now have uh, about 60,000 homes to get built over the next, what is it, five years? Five Ten years. years. Five years. This is... Simultaneously ambitious and disappointing, it's 60,000 homes, 28,900 of those are in the city of Vancouver. The next most go to Abbotsford, 7,000. Uh, Kamloops and Victoria both need, and Saanich all need four to 5,000. Delta needs 3,600. District of North Vancouver, 2,800. Port Moody and West Vancouver, about 1,500. And Oak Bay needs 664. They should have really given them two more houses just for funny numbers.
1: Yeah, so like you said, this steps up above current production a little bit. Um, So in that sense, it is somewhat ambitious, but where it really falls flat is compared to what the actual need is for new housing. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about how CMHC had updated their uh, supply gap estimate uh this one they projected out to twenty thirty. Uh and the high level takeaway from that is country needs three and a half million homes above baseline uh production uh projected forward. Uh BC's share of that is six hundred and ten thousand above the current uh projected uh business as usual case. For a total of 930,000 homes over the next uh, seven years. You break that out kind of into a yearly basis and spread that out over these 10 cities that account for about uh, 28% of the province. Uh, that implies we should be building about uh, thirty-seven thousand or 37,600 homes per year across these 10. So basically two years worth of these housing targets. Uh instead of over five years. So it is just nowhere near what we actually need in terms even of housing. the
0: Even the province's own press release admits this is 75% of what it has deemed the housing need for each of these municipalities. And it reminds me a lot of when the Clean BC plan was released, and they were like, this is going to get us like two-thirds or 75% of the way to what we need to get emissions down by to keep the climate under two degrees warming or whatever they set out and it's like that's that's a start where's the rest yeah and
1: unlike dealing with climate change and decarbonization which is a very tough technical problem uh and yeah you can put a lot of work in and still not get all the way there we're talking about you know some concrete and lumber and whatnot and being well yeah it's not easy to build Uh, 37,000 homes a year takes a lot of work, but it's not exactly rocket science. There's no new technologies that need to be rolled out or anything. It's just doing what we're doing, but more so. And in that respect, there's no real excuse to just go, eh, we're only going to go part way. Like, if you're planning to not hit the actual needs, you are planning to fail. And this is a plan to fail by the BC government. Which is Really disappointing because over the past year and a bit, they've actually seemed like they were moving forward in some good ways that were actually going to yield real results. And this is just a pretty hollow, disappointing and lackluster attempt at it. Building that many homes would have been hard, but if you don't even try to do it, you're guaranteed not to get there. And this is a plan not to get there.
0: One of the challenges I've been having staring at these numbers is the province is talking about net new units, and I think that's a very reasonable unit to use or measure, which is the number of homes that exist and people can move in that have been built minus the ones that got destroyed. So this is an additional essentially 30,000 homes in the city of Vancouver over the next five years. Versus sometimes we see, for example, Justin McElroy, and I don't want to pick on him, but he tweeted out a chart showing housing starts in the last five years versus these net new unit requirements. And it's like, oh, look, Vancouver had 28,000 housing starts in the last five years, which is basically the same as what they're being told to do. But if you don't discount those ones that are being demolished, and I haven't seen good numbers, I found one StatsCan report from... Uh, June of this year that says on an unadjusted current basis there were permits issued for the demolition of about 12,000 units nationwide in 2022 and that compares with the permits uh, issued for the creation of 23,000 units through conversions Um, and I missed how many actual like just straight up structures were being issued to be built so there's just so many like different measures and the government just Missed the chance to make this clear. Like if if they think this is ambitious and sufficient, they could have given us a better evidentiary backing to show that. Like they talked about the metrics and the indices that they use to create these numbers, but we don't have the raw math that went in. I mean, we are we what we are given to their credit is a breakdown of the ideal guidelines for how each city should structure their housing by unit size so studio 1 uh 2 3 bedroom apartment rental versus owned uh below market versus market and supportive units and there are actually quite a few below market and supportive units being put on these which I like seeing but it's just like where is the context to understand if this is as ambitious as they think it is or should we be as pessimistic as you are feeling Scott
1: Yeah and also in, where's the money coming from for those below market units and whatnot? Like uh, Kamloops, for example, actually Oak Bay as well. Several of them, but not all of them, have more below market than market rate units being built. And you know, how does the math on that work? Because there has to be a subsidy in there somewhere if you're doing, you know, greater than 50% of your rental units are below market. There's a lack of clarity on a lot of this stuff, and you know, it is easy to write down a number and say this is a target, but if you don't actually have the wherewithal to actually make sure it happens, it doesn't amount for a huge amount. And just on that uh, point about comparing the numbers, we don't ha- ha- always have good demolition numbers. They're not as well publicized as the housing starts or housing completion numbers are Um But taking the Vancouver one, like, Vancouver's own 10-year housing strategy that got started in 2017 and is, you know, chugging along, they called for 72,000 units over 10 years. So, like, this is, once again, it's a little hard without the uh, demolition numbers right in front of me, but, you know, this isn't, like, that far outside of what Vancouver has been doing for the past six years. And, you know, I don't know if anyone's looked at what rents are like in Vancouver recently, but they're not exactly seizing on that with what they are doing.
0: (sighs) Oh, I did actually find the demolition versus total new structures number in this stats can report. And it's about 9% of the units that are for, you know, for 250,000 dwellings that were, Issued permits to be built in 2022, about nine percent, twenty-two thousand nine hundred were, were issued. Issued, yeah, and then it's such a mess, right? A lot of things are getting ten percent are getting knocked down, so
1: I don't think that's you know right, bump but-
0: the bump these up. Bump these up by 10% and that's like the real how much they need to build. That might essence. actually be a bit
1: of an underestimate on the, the demolitions as a percentage. Um,
0: I, think, like, I think the key thing to get away from the numbers for a second, though, is like a lot of demolitions end up just being a one-for-one replacement. Like you take a single family home out and you put another one in. Sometimes, at least in Vancouver, we're starting to see duplexes and hopefully as the zoning starts to change, we'll start to see one go to four or six units as these upzoning laws come through. But that's where we need to, you know, ensure that we're not doing a single family home for a single family home, but we're actually increasing the number of units when we take one out and ideally doing it on a much bigger scale than just like two to one or three to one.
1: In fact, I think it might have been back around, I want to say 2019 or so. Uh, The city of Vancouver actually put out a a stat that showed the breakdown of what uh, percentage of new residential floor space was being uh, built per unit type, and 55% was for single detached. So basically, because Vancouver has no greenfield development potential left, that meant 55% of the construction capacity in residential was Go into one-for-one replacement. So yeah, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit on that, and the city's not been great about consistently putting that number out year over year. So I don't know what you know 2022's number was, but it's probably gotten a little better, but I doubt dramatically so.
0: So the province has pledged to release uh, another set of houses. I believe ten more municipalities will be named eight to 10 municipalities by the end of this year, and they will get their targets. So we'll look forward to that and who those are. The other question that was bouncing around in the back of my mind is like, what happens if they don't? And that is is actually answered by the Housing Supply Act that was passed late last year. And there's a whole compliance section. And just to run through from this point on, now that they've been given targets, the minister has to follow up and see how they're doing. And if he de- deems that they are not meeting sufficient uh, progress towards those targets, he can appoint a, an advisor or issue a directive. The advisor basically goes, talks to the municipality, gathers some information on the regulations and the, what they've done and brings a report back to Minister Ravi Calone. Not much there. The directive then, which I'm assuming he would probably do after, but he could go straight to a directive, would be to tell the municipality you have to enact a new bylaw to do what it takes or issue the permits that they are not issuing. And in those cases, he does have to make the argument that the benefit of issuing the directive is greater than not issuing it and that it's in the public interest. So there's lots of room for, you know, intransigent municipality to sue and if they really drag this out it can go to cabinet for them to just enact a new bylaw for the city
1: yeah there's a lot of process in here and it's worth taking a step back and remember that this was an act passed last fall during the uh, legislative session Uh, they'd been teasing it for almost a year before that we're now just getting the targets now. There won't be the first a- annual report till next year. It's, they're unlikely to take any steps off that unless, you know, there's like absurdly bad faith actions by cities that uh, come to the forefront during that time. So you know, add another year or two onto that. Uh, when, an
0: election falls in there, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, there's an
1: election in there. So realistically, we're probably looking at minimum three to four years before uh, any of this stuff actually gets fat-stopped by real provincial action on it. And sorry, three to four years from now, and longer when you take out the or take the whole timeline. To, In its entirety. And I don't know, it's just hard not to be disappointed by a government that made such a big deal about wanting to take the lack of housing supply seriously and is slow rolling every step on this.
0: It's also worth noting buried in the ministerial orders for each of these cities that contains the targets, there are annual targets they have to meet and those scale up. So it isn't like Vancouver has to make. 30,000 so they have to do 6,000 per year. It's like they have to do a few thousand this year double that and double that and so forth or whatever the exact number it is. But-
1: Which yeah on one hand is reasonable that like you're not going to immediately dramatically shoot all these up. It also means that if they are slower than they need to be on this it's not really going to show up for a couple of years or so.
0: Well this is the first of at least a few housing measures being taken this fall. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll feel better once we see the other bills that come through. Maybe, Uh, but like these are the
1: metrics which they're judging success and failure by and compared to uh, what their own numbers say they need, they're undershooting that by 30%. And compared to uh, what CMHC says is needed, they're, you know, two thirds below what they need to be doing Uh, on this. So yeah, new other measures would probably be great. But if they think success is a fraction of what actual success looks like, what's the point?
0: The point is they face no real challenge in the legislature, as we have another poll from Research Co. this week, uh, basically confirming what we talked about from the Main Street poll last week, I believe it was, except in this one, the NDP is sitting at 48%. And BC United and the Conservatives are tied around 20 and 19% respectively. And the Greens are struggling at 12%. Uh, And so if you're the NDP, you are laughing and hopefully not foolish enough to call a snap election, which you'd win. But we had one of those three years ago. We don't need another. We can wait.
1: Yeah. So why call a snap election when it looks like uh, the the two opposition parties on the right are just going to be fighting it out with each other but, you know, you wait six months to a year and they're probably going to be even more divided. The Conservatives are probably going to have more time to build a team, get their fundraising up and at that point they will be in a stronger position to uh, eat into the uh, BC United vote it's like there is just no point in rushing it, no matter how you look at it
0: yeah, there was a bunch of other questions Mario Canseco put in his poll here. He found the voter pool for each of the different parties, like would you consider in any realm voting for any of these parties, is highest for the NDP at 51%, although given they're at 48%, they basically have anyone who considers voting them for them voting for them. Uh, the Conservatives have 37% to the BC United's 32%, so that's really bad news for Kevin Falcon, even in the best case scenario- he can't get to a place where he can form government. Uh, well, not only
1: that, like same- if you look at the um, the breakdown on would definitely consider or would probably consider in terms of the uh, pool of voters, BC United only has 10% on the definitely consider where the conservatives have 15%. At, they're both tied at 22 for the probably number, which to me says the conservatives have more energy behind them. They are more, not only do they have a bigger pool in general, but their pool is more tilted towards people with a higher propensity to vote for them. It's bad for the BC United.
0: Yeah. We also see, uh, 32% of British Columbians would want to see the United and conservative parties merge. Can't wait well, for the 40, United BC 30% United 30% party. United conservative party. It exists. Elsewhere. Uh, they also asked who would be better suited of John Rustad or Kevin Falcon to form the next government, and neither, neither of them are that popular. Uh, 21% say Falcon would be better. Uh versus Rustad is seen better by like, you know, a similar amount. So just bad news for Kevin Falcon and the BC United. It's it's good news for John Rustad and the BC Conservatives in that they are rising. They are not in a realm where they can do anything serious, but they are hurting their main rival right now. So that's that's a win for them. Yeah, One is up, one is down. They,
1: they have two seats, and if they can have more than two seats after the next election, things are looking up for them, which uh, is probably going to be the case if things keep going the way they are.
0: Finally, provincially, we have one final story from David Eby, who told CBC News this week that uh, he is expecting the federal government to introduce changes to the SPY Acts, the CSIS Act, so that in the future, CSIS agents can actually tell him useful things beyond just what is reported in the news and public realm.
1: Yeah, so uh, I think we mentioned this when we were talking about the whole India thing last week, that... David Eby got a briefing from CSIS. Uh, Turns out that uh, the briefing he got is what they call an open source briefing, which basically means this is what is publicly available. So it's, you know, what David Eby probably had read in the paper the morning before the briefing. You know, not great. Yeah, I'm sure the people at CSIS are, you know, Decent at collecting that all and, and synthesizing it into something, but it's not exactly uh, using the full resources of the agency to uh, inform the premier of the third largest province of important things happening in his province, particularly when it comes to the uh, safety and security of people, critical infrastructure, and whatnot within the province.
0: So we'll see what changes come to the CSIS Act in the coming months as Parliament moves. I mean, honestly it's like To hopefully do something substantive. It is also just
1: light like long overdue for an update. like substantively a lot of that stuff is still rooted in I think like the nineteen I want to say nineteen eighties. Um and made you know, a few updates in the two thousands, uh post nine eleven, but you know, the The structure was Cold War remnant that's gotten periodic uh tweets and it uh could probably use a significant overhaul for the uh the mid 21st century
0: well the one thing that might get in the federal government's way of actually passing new laws is that um parliament's been a shit show
1: that's a understatement <laughs> what a so fucking mess
0: let's let's start On Friday, everyone's going to know most of the stories, but there's a few key things I want to kind of pick up as we go through the timeline. Friday, I think it's morning, uh, Zelensky, president of Ukraine, as everyone knows, gives an address to the House of Commons. Following that, Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, recognizes one of the constituents from his constituency and Recognizes him as a Canadian hero, a Ukrainian hero, and someone who fought against the Russians in the Second World War, is how I think he put it. Which, if you know your history, should tell you something. It should be a clue. Nevertheless, people were in a, you know, in a cheering mood because they wanted to cheer our ally Ukraine. And so everyone stood and applauded this guy who, as was quickly well, it wasn't even quickly pointed out, as was maybe pointed out over the two, couple of days. It
1: broke over the weekend and it wasn't even in like one of the major media. Yeah. Break it.
0: So the way it got pulled out is Associated Press had the guy's name, Yaroslav Hanka, in a caption of its story, I think on Saturday. And then a few people, I know leftist Twitter kind of picked up on it quickly. And I think some of the far right also picked up on it, pointing out that he was a member of the... Waffen SS 14th Division, which is the Nazi formation in a volunteer group in Ukraine of Ukrainian soldiers that was formed to fight uh, against the Bolsheviks and against Russia, but they also allegedly did some war crimes in Poland and, you know, pledged allegiance to Hitler. Um, Ukraine has largely disowned this part of its independence tradition Noting that, like, these people were involved in independence, but we don't like them. After the Associated Press story broke, it was, I think, picked up by Forward, a Jewish magazine, and then B'nai Brith and uh, the Friends of the Simon Weisenthal Center, two Jewish advocacy groups that are actually generally somewhat conservative or centrist to center right, depending on the time of the day. Uh, they demanded an official apology because they said, You had a Nazi in parliament, which is a Fact.
1: Yeah, fair request. And then it blew up. <laughs> but, the,
0: but it was like Sunday before that really happened, which was a good amount of time for a lot of the Canadian press gallery to have just ignored it or just not paid attention.
1: or not really picked up. Like The, the press gallery is pretty bare bones these days. It may have been an actual capacity issue, which is, to be clear, damning in its own way.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things that went wrong in those first days before we even get to how did he get there, which we still don't know exactly other than we're pinning it all on Anthony Rhoda. But like between every MP in the house, just kind of going along with the flow of cheering for everyone who was being cheered for that day to everyone in the press gallery, whoever was able to attend and just just, like the follow-up reporting just kind of going, and, you know, they cheered for a Ukrainian war veteran, is a real failure of, you know, analysis and just, like, looking at what happens and who are these people. And, you know, it might have been, there could have been a great story here. There could have been a, like, real human interest, like maybe he wasn't a Nazi in a different timeline. And
1: y- yeah, like, um, yeah, the the Russians did some, horrible horrible things in Ukraine in like the 30s and there could have been a story involved involving resistance to that that's not the case here but you know nobody actually bothered doing the work to find out
0: and so we move forward we get statements of regret for the incident happening from rota from the ndp from the block i believe the block called for Roto to resign. I didn't look at their full statement. Um, The Conservatives said this was a shameful incident that Trudeau is personally responsible for. And, you know, we can come back to Polyev's statement. Although I don't think I ever saw Polyev express um, sorrow that he stood and applauded. I did look through as many of his words as I could find. Trudeau did apologize for applauding and has very since, I think it was only today, done a like formal apology in the house from the government to zelensky you know a jewish president who stood there probably unknowing like not really paying attention to every single thing that went on but uh yeah and you know he also and trudeau also apologized to jewish community and all the many other people who were victims of the holocaust and the nazi regime so we got all of that. We got Anthony Rota's resignation I out, as well. Before
1: we get into the resignation, I, I will yeah. point out like, the apology that Rota put out um, in the form of a press release, I think it was Sunday, might have been Monday, was fairly bare bones. Like It alluded to the event, but didn't actually say, this is what happened, and I'm sorry uh, for it, and It also did the thing that has become all too common of I take responsibility with a period rather than a comma and therefore in it. So if we had left there, it would have just been a vague responsibility with no follow-on action.
0: It's a half apology, right? We have the not apology, the I'm sorry you're offended thing. Thankfully, no one did that. But one step beyond. I'm sorry this unfortunate
1: incident happened. Unfortunately, it may not be the word for word, but it was that vibe rather than, I am sorry, I invited.
0: Yeah, there's like a level of... There's like a process to a good apology that includes, you know, recognizing what was done wrong, saying the words, I'm sorry, or some clear variation of that. uh, Setting up a path to how you will make amends for that and what you're going to do to prevent this from happening in the future. And he got like the second thing in there because we... All we know is like there was an oversight by his part or his office's part in fully vetting or looking into this guy. And the official story is Anthony Roto recognized, you know, he was a constituent who was, you know, active in the Ukrainian-Canadian community in Ontario, North Bay, Ontario. And therefore, as as a member of the House, he used his ability and his authority to bring a guest into the House and recognize him. This is something every member of Parliament can do, and it's independent of their party status or what the Prime Minister wants. Now the... And,
1: and also the Speaker generally has quite wide latitude over what happens in Parliament. They are, in theory, an independent office that uh exercises control over Parliament and are separate from the government and whatnot. So... The opposition, as oppositions are wont to do, tried to make this the government's problem, and you know, on a strict constitutional reading, that's pretty incorrect, because this is clearly within the purview of Parliament and the speaker. That said, there's more to how things work than just what the text of the Constitution says and this is a government that is extremely centrally managed. You know, ministers can't even blow their nose without asking PMO for cleanets. And it doesn't entirely pass the smell test to suggest that on one of the most important state visits of the year, the PMO did not really talk to the speaker's office about this is how we are going to do the address, the joint address by the president of Ukraine and Trudeau to the house. So the buck ultimately stops with the speaker. I don't entirely buy that no one outside of the Speaker's office would have had any insight into what was gonna happen.
0: Yeah, that's my read on it too. Like I can kinda of believe Rhoda's story in for the you know, procedural history, the constitutional reasons you mention, But I can also very much see that like, this is not your usual introduction of a guest. And so, it does beg the question of like, who did know? And that's where more information would be helpful. There's zero chance we can A-tip this or FOI this because this is a parliamentary thing and they have parliamentary privilege. They operate behind closed doors and they've exempted themselves from all of that kind of legislation. So we're not going to get emails from Rhoda's office unless he's got a leak, which fingers crossed because that'd be funny. Uh, And this government's not known for keeping secrets very well these days. But the other possible option, and I this was brought up by one of those Jewish groups, I believe it was the Simon Weisensalt enter, suggested that the procedures committee should hold hearings on this and really just call Rhoda and the prime minister and others who might know more and call for documents and use their power as the parliament to get to the bottom of it. And I think that's a very reasonable way to go forward rather than kind of Screaming at Trudeau as though he is a Nazi apologist, which, like everyone in that chamber, stood and applauded. So no one has moral high ground here,
1: except for the few MPs that just weren't there by happenstance. Yeah,
0: true. Although I think they might have clapped too, based on the mood of the day. The other thing that's been called for the release of and is part of a report that was done from a commission in the 1980s, 1986, the Descheng commission, which was done under Brian Mulroney. And this is a fun bit of Canadian history where we called a Royal commission. Actually, I don't think it was a Royal commission. We called a commission, a public inquiry effectively into why we have so many war criminals living in our country. Um, and they tried to quantify the number and they came up with a number like two thousand ex Nazis were living in Canada, uh, but it's okay, Scott. It's okay. And that
1: was the high yeah. estimate, I believe. The report said uh, it's probably not that high, but six hundred pages of the thing are redacted and never been released. So who knows?
0: The report. I'm like neither of us were politically aware at the time. I was literally an infant. I was not. Yeah. So I have read reporting from David Pugliese and others that it was not well received at the time from virtually anyone. Uh, some people said this is like fingering way too many people as Nazis. Some Jewish group says this lets way too many groups, including this 14th SS division off the hook. Uh, it didn't apparently consider evidence from the Nuremberg trials as to which groups were war criminals and did war crimes. Um, but it really just points to a history in Canada we don't talk much about, which is how you end up having a Nazi in Parliament, that for a long time, it was much easier to get into this country if you were a former member of the SS than if you were Jewish, as some have put it. Not great. Um. Yeah. I, like, I read one historian's quote about it was like, if you had an SS tattoo, they at least knew you were anti-communist and that was a good enough reason to let you in. And I'm like, we can dislike different things. Yeah,
1: you can both dislike the SS and communists. They're both terrible in different ways.
0: Oh, uh, and so yeah, I I'm actually like most overall for this story just surprised it actually took off because I've almost felt like we've been unwilling to talk about some of these issues for so long in this country and apparently the new directive for trudeau to his caucus is let's just keep shutting up about this and hopefully it goes away which i get from the comms point of view but from the hey we have a nazi problem in this country like there are still monuments to this ss division in edmonton and other cities um we need to reckon with this history
1: yes don't really have much to add to to that. Um, but yeah, circling back to uh, what happened in Parliament. Um, yesterday was kind of the big fallout from it all. Uh, a couple things happened. Uh, Anthony Rhoda finally took the hint that it was time to resign and step down. There will be a new speaker selected possibly this week. I also did see some stuff that the, uh, standing orders hadn't been updated to allow a hybrid vote. So maybe, uh, they need to all have everyone come back for it. Uh, they were wanting to do it tomorrow, but I'm not sure if that's actually going to happen. Also, by the time you're listening to this tomorrow, will probably already passed. And one thing I'm curious about, um, So it's tradition that when a speaker gets elected, they get dragged up to the uh, speaker's chair. Uh, This goes back to when uh, speakers had a tendency to get beheaded for delivering news the monarch didn't like to hear from Parliament. I'm wondering, when a uh, speaker gets unceremoniously uh, resigned, do they get dragged back to their own benches?
0: It's literally never happened, Scott. In so Canada,
1: we have, t- we have a chance to create a new tradition here, and uh, I think we should take advantage of that opportunity.
0: Yeah, I saw at least, and I haven't verified this because I haven't gone through the history of every speaker in Canada, but one tweet pointed out that in Canadian history, one speaker was uh, died in office. Another was replaced when they became governor general, uh, but otherwise there, that was like the only resignation in history. Otherwise, they either just don't run again, or uh, get defeated in one of the Speaker elections. That's actually how Rhoda got his job, because the Conservatives lined up behind him to embarrass the Liberals uh, by defeating their other, their previous Speaker, um, in just like a petty move, which whatever. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Speakers generally do a really good job in this country at not being the news and not being the story, but instead just effectively chairing the meetings as they're supposed to um the longest serving speaker peter milliken made the news quite a bit because he was the tie-breaking vote during a long minority period and he had to break a record number of ties during that time uh but yeah what a inglorious end to anthony rhoda's career as speaker of the house
1: indeed uh and yeah the only other thing from tuesday i mention is that uh there's also some debate over how exactly Parliament should uh, respond to it. Uh, Karina Gould, the Liberal uh, House leader, put forward a motion to uh, basically delete all the records that this ever happened from Hansard. Uh, that required unanimous consent and got voted down, which was the right call on that. Like You shouldn't hide what happened taking responsibility means like we said when we were talking about uh, Rhoda's half apology you gotta admit what actually happened and trying to hide it behind redactions doesn't really cut it
0: her motion actually did go further and said it would also delete all multimedia recordings too and that seems excessive Um, yeah so I I don't think
1: she cleared that with everyone ahead of time in her caucus because on the video behind her After she says multimedia, you could see Melanie Jolie kind of have a what-the-hell look on her face and do like a gesture to that effect.
0: That I didn't watch. But like that's kind of a hint that it was far more of a symbolic effort by the liberals. And I'll come back to legitimacy or not in a second. But anytime you want to move a unanimous motion, you're either going to do it because you've talked to all the House leaders and you're sure you can get it through. And so it's kind of pro forma or you're doing it to just like virtue signal. And that's much more clearly what they did here because they probably had a good sense. The conservatives weren't going to support this. What's interesting on the, you know, legitimacy side is there's at least one precedent in Canadian history for striking from the Hansard record. And that's when conservative MP Michael Cooper read a long excerpt of the manifesto of the new zealand mosque shooter into a committee record when he was grilling uh one of the people who was there to be um questioned by the committee and after mps reacted rather in horror to a conservative mp reading white supremacist propaganda into the record seemingly not for any valuable purpose either um And they opted to try to strike it. I think the House of Commons as a whole couldn't get unanimous consent, but the committee did with some conservatives abstaining. Uh, And so that got struck from the committee records. But you can very much find evidence that that happened through contemporary reporting, through a note that's in Hansard that that motion was struck. And so I won't agree that striking it from Hansard erases it from history, because it clearly didn't. the videos would still exist outside parliament and they're not, it's the internet. They're not going to, even if they tried to sue everyone to take it down, it'll still exist. But, you know, I I can see a value to a situation, especially like the Michael Cooper situation where you go, that was not a substantive uh, contribution. And what you said created a lot of harm to people who are very afraid of being shot up in their place of worship. And so, Let's undo that. Um, Michael Cooper by the way is now the democratic reform critic for the conservatives. So you can fall upwards. I don't actually I don't actually know. He might have been in a higher role then, so maybe he did fall down a bit, but he's still an MP.
1: Yeah, I mean ultimately the way I see it is that Hansard has the purpose of recording what happened in the house of commons it's the official record it is you know our parliament saying this is what we said this is what happened and that's its primary goal it's not there to report what we want, wish had been said it's not there to affirm our values it's there to be the record and that record really should not be altered uh Outside of extraordinary circumstances, and this is bad, but it is not the a uh, situation that cannot be rectified by other means um i mean the the speaker's resigned there's potential for future motions of a censure by parliament there's um they can append a notice or uh like a footnote to it basically repudiating the statement in the record. There's other ways to do it that doesn't fundamentally undermine the role of Hansard. And in that way, I think the, uh, the liberals erred in how they were going about it. Like you said, it's, uh, was a symbolic motion more than anything else because it, uh, the information is still out there. Although given the way the, uh, the media has been, uh, shuddering, who knows how those, uh, how long those website archives will be up for, but um, it wouldn't have done what it needed to do and it would have degraded the official record. So just all, all around a bad approach to trying to resolve an unfortunate and terrible situation. So yeah, that overshadowed the visit, uh, which is unfortunate because be- beyond degrade the statue of Parliament and everything from this, uh it also just handed a propaganda win to the russians which uh we should not uh be happy about at all uh and ultimately in a small way undermined uh the war effort in ukraine which is unfortunate uh the good news on that front though is that uh as part of the this visit Candace pledged that store 650 million on top of uh the previously committed aid for Ukraine and is uh, leveling sanctions, uh, further sanctions against Russia for the uh, removal and kidnapping of uh, Ukrainian children in occupied territories.
0: The money is going to be spread out for several years. Uh, our total amount provided to Ukraine is now $9 billion, which includes a $2.5 billion loan. Um, I don't have the full details in front of me of, like, how this breaks down in funding for um, relief versus arms versus other ways, but... um. If
1: there was four arms, it probably would have been announced as an arms package. It tends to be how they uh, get announced. You know, we're providing so many rounds of ammunition or uh, so many tanks or fighting vehicles or whatnot. So this is most likely a general aid, but unfortunately, the, uh, the Globes article that we're linked to here is uh, surprisingly truncated. Anyway, mostly just wanted to, to no- note that as a counterpoint.
0: Uh, I found a CBC source on it that talks about $650 million military aid over three years to allow Ukraine to acquire 50 armored vehicles, including vehicles for medical evacuations that will be built in London, Ontario. So there's a little more detail. You just have to find the story that came out, like, before the weekend. And then it was all, like, all, well, not happy, but because the war is not a good thing. But there there wasn't a, like, uh, shadow, very dark shadow of Hitler hanging over it. Let's close the show how we started it, though I have no transition here with some housing announcements from the federal government. We talked previously about the federal government's announcement in London, Ontario of that uh, Housing Accelerator Fund deal with London, Ontario. They reached one with Calgary and with Halifax as well, although Halifax has now as a council decided they don't want to upzone the whole city and are asking for permission to not do that, which seems to violate the l- literal letters of these deals. Um. But in that spirit of not doing what the government is asking you to do if you want to get the money, uh, the federal government has decided to postpone announcements for Surrey and BC. As it turns out, they are not super happy that Metro Vancouver has been looking at uh, increasing a number of the development cost levies that would apply across the region and thereby making housing a little bit more expensive and difficult to build.
1: Yeah, so recently Metro Vancouver announced they're intending to, uh, fairly significantly increase uh, a bunch of their development fees. And these are fees that get, uh, added on top of the fees the c- cities charge directly for their own, uh, development cost charges. Um, so this would be going to the regional infrastructure as opposed to the municipal infrastructure. So like, you know, the bait sewer lines that collect from all of the city collection systems and feed into the uh wastewater treatment plants. Uh, but the the net effect of it all was, it was basically going to eat up a sizable portion of the uh GST cot. So... Wasn't strictly like an anti-development thing, but the net effect of it was that basically Metro Vancouver was using the uh, the newly freed up tap space to uh, snag a bunch of money for itself on this, and that housing minister was not having any of that because uh, he basically saw this as an attempt to. Maybe not undermine it, but it was working at cross-purposes with the Housing Accelerator Fund and the uh, Fed's newfound enthusiasm for uh, pro-development housing policies. And as a result, uh, the planned Housing Accelerator funding announcements to Burnby and Surrey were cancelled pending uh, for the review. So they'd already sent letters to the city saying, yeah. We're going to give you the money. Let's set up a uh, time to do the official announcement on that. And that all got put on hold after this, which uh, honestly is probably the strongest sign so far that uh, John Fraser is serious about this. He is not playing around. It's one thing to say, yeah, we're not going to go ahead if you guys are not going to make some changes or whatever. But to actually pull back after an initial commitment—that's—that's that's a sign of playing hardball, and uh, gotta respect that.
0: Yeah, the like I get Metro Vancouver's conundrum because they're they are responsible for a lot of very expensive infrastructure, but it seems like this is a case where rather than raise property taxes that are still pretty low comparatively to the rest of the country, they decided they could triple the water fees, they charge new developments, quadruple the liquid waste fees, and create a new parks fee. In other words, the average apartment would face uh cost fees going from six thousand currently to about twenty one thousand.
1: Yeah, that's a significant hit. Uh for per sure. apartment. Like, like I said, it was not a small change on this. And that's it's branded as Growth Pays for Growth, which is frankly a kind of bullshit way to go about this. Uh because these this is infrastructure that everyone uses that whether or not the house you buy is new or old, you still need a super connected to it. And that still requires capital costs to build, there's ongoing uh maintenance costs on all of that, and Rather than charging it up front and basically putting it on the backs of new home buyers or new renters, really it should be spread across the lifetime of the unit in the form of property taxes on that unit. But, uh, you know, there are not that many developers in, uh, the city compared to the number of property owners more generally, so uh, they tend to get outvoted on this, and the uh, the new residents, uh, well, they don't get a vote at all because they are not living there yet. So it's politically advantageous, but terrible policy.
0: Uh very good policy, though, is Christian Freeland's pledge to just open up another tw- $20 billion for low-cost rental construction financing. Great. The lim- this increases the limit to sixty billion dollars and basically helps developers build apartments with uh, government-backed loans, as far as I understand it. Yeah, and- good.
1: I mean, there's a delta between what uh, the Feds can borrow at and what um, non-profits in the private sector can borrow at. So take advantage of that. Use the subsidy from there, and like the true subsidy isn't the 20 billion it's the uh difference in the uh interest rate between the two what the feds are charging um yeah what people can borrow from the feds on this and what the feds actually pay uh compared to what that the uh market rate prices are for uh the interest on there so good on them but, uh, it's if anything more sustainable than the high 20 billion dollar number figures cuz presumably these are subsequent loans that get loaned out and that's now an asset on the feds books
0: i got nothing else <laughs> all right it's well.
1: I, I will just note this it's weird that uh like a month ago if you were to ask me to like assess where the province and the feds were on housing i would uh say the province is making all the right signs they're moving in the right direction this is when they finally rolled the out there stuff it's going to be great and the feds are asleep at the switch and uh, the housing minister is useless and now that has like flipped on its head with uh what got announced this week between the two and I like, we it's weird i won't say it's good because bc's disappointed me completely on this but uh eh, sean fraser might be the the goat of a housing minister and did not see that coming
0: You know, I just look forward to the housing arms race happening between BC and Ottawa, if we can really pitch it up that way. I'm not totally down on this week's announcement, but it could have been, everything could always be better. Even the like, even the announcements with Surrey and Burnaby, right? They were just like, what you've done so far is great. Here's money. And like, I get there's a political angle to that of why you would want to just applaud some of the good actions that they've both taken and they both have to an extent but they're still insufficient <laughs> so let, let's let get some houses built whatever it takes just do it
1: and that has been Playcoast find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreoncom Playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.